All right, so we're looking at uh, the rest of chapter 1 of the book of Mark. Uh, we begin with verse 16, but we're going to step back to verse 15 just for a moment. I want to talk a little bit about this kind of key verse. Verse 15 says that Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and that the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is, has come near, repent and believe the good news. The time has come, the kingdom of God is in hand, repent and believe the gospel. Uh, so uh, I want to take these phrases. Uh, first, I want to talk a little bit about the good news. Uh, good news is a New Testament idea, correct? Uh, doesn't show up at all in the New Testament. The Old Testament's all about bad news. The, the, the New Testament's all about good news, right? I mean, that's the way we think about it, isn't it? That's the way, in a lot of ways, it's been preached to us all of our lives. But the concept of the good news comes from the Old Testament. It actually comes from the book of Isaiah. So where do we see it in the book of Isaiah? Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> What's that? Chapter 6. Chapter 6. Uh, close. There's one I want you to look at. Isaiah 61, 1. That's close to 6. It's got a 6 in it. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody read that. Okay, and then it goes on from there. Do you recognize that verse? That's what Jesus read. It's a verse that Jesus read in the, in the, in the synagogue in Nazareth. And uh, so this is clearly a messianic passage. And this is part of the, the sign of the coming of the, of the Messiah, that he would preach good news. Okay, we have some other verses that talk about the good news. Um, how about... Isaiah 52, 7. Someone read that one. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Okay. Beautiful passage. We sing it, right? Um, it's a great passage. What does it mean? Uh, well, unless it's God. Um, so, so it's, um, think about it. If you are in a city, a walled city like Jerusalem, and there's an invader coming, the Assyrians or the Babylonians, for example, and you send your army out to fight in the field, the people are anxiously waiting on the walls to find out news from the battle. They can't watch CNN. They can't send up a drone and get drone footage, okay? They don't have a telephone or a radio or a walkie-talkie, right? So what do they do? They wait for the runner to come back over the hill, come back over the crest, and they see him waving the flag of victory. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, okay? Our God reigns. All right, so you see the image here? Uh, the, the, the idea of good news is this message of salvation, that salvation has been won. 
that we are free, that, that the enemy, the threat that was coming at us, the certain doom that was upon us has been defeated. Our God has defeated the enemy. And we've just received news of that. That's good news. Okay. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Um, and then uh, someone look at Isaiah 40. We talked about Isaiah 40 already, right? Yes. Transition. Yeah, it's that transition passage. Um, so if we look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse... Um, so look at verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on the high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Doesn't that sound like the story of Jesus in the Gospels? The story of the good shepherd who comes with power but yet with tenderness? Loving on those who are poor and who are broken, who are in need, right? And so all of this is laid out for us in the Old Testament. So when Jesus comes preaching the good news, the Jews understood what that meant, okay? They knew these, these passages in Isaiah. And Jesus is going to put feet to them and hands. He's going to live them out. Okay, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. Why did God wait 400 years silently to send Jesus? Why did he wait so long? I mean, he could have done this centuries ago, right? But he waits so long. Well, I want you to just think about this, the geopolitical situation when Jesus comes into the world. Jesus is born into a time period in world history we call the Pax Romana. It's during the time of the reign of Caesar Augustus. Augustus brings peace to all the known world, to all the Mediterranean world. He, he unites by conquest all of these warring peoples that have been fighting with each other, killing each other for years. And what does he do? He begins to build roads so that transportation and trade can flourish because he wants to get rich. But in the process, he has created a stable environment in which the gospel can spread most efficiently a time that has never existed in the world up until that point and would not exist for centuries late until centuries later. It was a time of free movement. It was a time when the Greek language is practically universally spoken throughout the entire world. And so God has embedded a language, a single language that can be used to communicate the truth of the gospel throughout the entire world, the Greek language. No lengua franca has ever been in place like that before. And now there is a single language. There's freedom of movement and there's relative peace to be able to carry the gospel wherever it needs to go.
Then you put on top of that that God had planted Jewish communities because of their propensity toward commerce in all of the major trading cities throughout the Roman Empire. And so in essence, what we have are proto-churches, proto-iglesias, proto-churches that have been established uh, throughout the Roman world. These will become the leaders of the Christian church. These Jews already know the one true God. These Jews already have memorized the Bible, which is the Old Testament. These Jews already have uh, been establishing uh, uh, the presence of God in different places to the point that there were God-fearers, Gentiles, that surrounded the Jewish synagogue. People that were Gentiles, but they were attracted to the Jewish God. And so when the Apostle Paul and other evangelists show up at these synagogues and preach Jesus Christ, Jews accept the Lord and these God-fearing Gentiles. And so it begins the church. It's like this, these little perfect environments to begin the church in every major trading city throughout the world. None of that existed before. All of that happens over the period of 400 years of silence. God is like a chess master. He's positioning his pieces all over the board. And now the time is ready. Jesus comes into this, brings the gospel, dies on the cross. God commissions the apostle Paul, who opens the door to the world. And the gospel within the one generation is everywhere in the Roman Empire. Everywhere. Amazing. And we wonder, God, what are you doing? Why are you waiting? And God says, will you be quiet? You have no idea what I'm doing. And you wouldn't understand it if I explained it to you. Okay? Do you understand? And so the time is fulfilled. This is the time. Okay? Uh, And uh, there are probably, we could talk about this. There are all kinds of other reasons um, prophetically and, and every other way that the time is fulfilled. But I listened listen to a historian say God sent Jesus the soonest that he could. He could not be before, and you wouldn't want to go after. But it was to the day. This, he, he lays it out from before Abraham. That, that was the soonest that he could. Yeah. It's, it's just amazing, and we're just taking a little snapshot. But if you just think about it for a moment, and, and you know, we look at our own lives, and we're always so anxious for God to do what we want Him to do, right? God, why won't you do this? Why won't you bring salvation in this area of my life? Give me what I want. God says, I'm doing something bigger than you. I'm doing something bigger in you. I'm doing something bigger with you than you could ever imagine. So, Just chill out for a moment and trust in me, right? And this is, I think, really important and an important application of this little verse. So this is such a powerful, powerful verse, powerful idea um, for us to think about. All right. Yes. I know a lot of us think, like, couldn't it have been, you know, back in the Mayberry days, or, you know, why are we here now? Or, but he has us here, all of us. 
we don't always know, but that's right. Each one of us. That's right. And so we trust, right? So now we come to the calling of the of the disciples. Um, we have four disciples. Who are the first four disciples that are called? Simon and Andrew. James and John. Okay. What links these four together? They're all fishermen. They're fisher peoples, right? They're fishermen. Um, huh? They look at fish all day long. Thank you. <clears throat> and so, um, what strikes you about Mark's um, Mark's calling of the disciples? They went immediately. Okay, they respond to Jesus immediately. Jesus, uh, tell me about Jesus' call to them. Come, I'll make you fishers of men. Okay, come, follow me. Uh, it's a very simple call, isn't it? Um, we don't know much about... Uh, we're, we're introduced to these people. It's a very action-oriented. There's, there's immediate movement, isn't there? Um, all of a sudden, boom! Uh, Jesus shows up on the scene, and he says, You, 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 and you. Follow me. Right? And they say, yes. And they sets the brothers. Right. And, and so they follow Jesus. And um, do you think they knew the extent to which that call meant, you know? Probably not. No. <laughs> or they'd have never done it, baby. Um, you know, you know, hey, you know, you're Simon. You know, we're going to change your name to Peter, and uh, you're going to end up in Rome hanging upside down on a cross. You think you would have followed? No, it wouldn't have happened. They must have had some idea, though, for them to immediately drop what they're doing and walk off. There was something compelling about Jesus' call. It was like an offer they couldn't refuse, right? But the other part here is that uh, in order for you or for us to understand good news, we must experience bad news first. Mm -hmm. Because something bad is happening, something good is here. And those are the good news. So when there was something bad that was there, or why they were trapped, they didn't need to be delivered. Yeah. So Jesus yeah. comes as a deliverer, and then says, I bring good news. So they want to follow that. Because this is good. That's right. Yeah, there's enough bad going on in their lives. There's a, there's a sense of anticipation that has been built up that the coming of the Messiah is going to change all of this for them. Um, I, I'm, I'm uh, amazed by the simplicity of the call, the incompleteness of the call. Come, follow me. It's a very relational call, isn't it? Come and be with me. Follow me. It isn't come and um, learn my teachings. He doesn't say come and follow my rules, which was their understanding of religion. It was very personal from the very beginning. Come, be with me. Come and see where I'm going and where I am and be with me. And, and Christianity is a very personal religion. It is following Jesus. It is being with Jesus. It's not built and especially in Mark, when we talk about the actions of Jesus rather than the teachings of Jesus, it's not built on these uh, endless lists of rules like Islam or like Judaism is. It's built on a relational experience with the living God. Um, and this all happens quickly. Uh, John and James come. They leave their dear old dad in the boat 
<laughs> and, um, and they follow. Immediately, where do they go? They go into Capernaum. Capernaum is in the northern, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and we'll talk more about Capernaum next time, um, just simply because we have too many fish to fry this time. So, uh, ooh. So, so uh, they follow him into the city of Capernaum and on the Sabbath go where? To the synagogue. Of course. Who's in the synagogue? The peoples. Who, what kind of people go to the synagogue on Saturday? The Jews. What kind of Jews? Observant Jews. The good Jews. Right? The good church-going Jews. Right? The, the, the respectable people of the community. And one demon, okay? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The fact that there's a demon in church, you know, if that surprises you, you haven't been in church very long, right? Um, but, but I want you to get the kinds of people that are here. These are James and John and Peter and Andrew. These are their peers, because James and John were observant, good Jews. They were middle-class guys. They were, they were part of this group. They were part of the synagogue-going folk. Okay? Respectable people in the community. They smelled okay? like fish. They smelled like fish. But everybody else did too. Okay? So we were in a fishing village. So... Um, they are following Jesus first among their peers, among the people that God had, uh, the people that were most like them. Even though, uh, I, even in that day, I would imagine there were like different denominations of Jews. I mean, that sounds crazy, but the, what I'm kind of trying to say is when Jesus, I'm going to go to another verse, but when Jesus was presented as a child and came in and Simeon said, you know, and the, and the woman, I can't remember her name, Anna. said, Hannah, Hannah, Anna. thank you. Anna. Anna, okay. They kind of had been waiting and anticipating, and, you know, so I think there might have been a, I'm, I'm going to lump these four fishermen in with them, that they were anticipating, they were mm. seeing, that they felt, you know, they were in the group that, you know, he could come back at any time. So they had the mindset a little different than, the, say, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They were in a group that said, you know, we've been told about it in the past. Our religious teaching shows us there's going to be. Yes. And so, so we thought So when you think in terms of what you're saying, I, I, I hear what you're saying, I, and I agree. You know, you've got Sadducee-type people. We're going to talk about them when we get as much later in Mark. Sadducees don't show up until the end because Sadducees are associated with the temple and we don't go to the temple until the end of the story here. And so the Sadducee type people are, they are people who have been Greekified. They're Hellenized, okay? And they've got a Hellenistic mentality. They are kind of sellouts to the idea of being part of the Roman world. They're PCUSA people, okay? They've kind of made that, they've made that leap, okay? They're, they are, they are, they have, they have bought into the culture, yeah. all right? Yeah. Whereas, whereas the, the people who are following the Pharisees that are 
synagogue-based followers of, uh, of, of Judaism. They are nationalistic, and they are, um, they are waiting for the coming of the Messiah. They are very law-focused and rule-focused. And so, um, yeah, so all that's going on. So you've got these different groups. And then, then you have Jews who really aren't very observant at all that are just kind of, you know, we're Jews, but we're really acting like Greeks. Okay, and we got a lot of that going on too. But in Capernaum, this is an area that is very observant. observant. It's a very area that would be very much... Um, Jewish. Very, very Jewish, okay? And so we've got that going for us here. And Dan, yeah. the, the Jews who were acting like Greeks didn't know that they weren't in because they had Abraham's blood, so they're... Right, right. They felt like they had an ace in the hole, right? And so all of a sudden this, this unclean spirit shows up, right? Begins to proclaim who Jesus is. You are the Holy One of God. You've come to destroy us. I know who you are. And Jesus, what does he do? How does he react? He says, you're absolutely right, doesn't he? No. Shut up, right? He, he silences the demon. Why would he silence the demon when he was speaking the truth? It was too soon. It was too soon? That's part of it. What else is... Distracting him from his message. It's distracting him from his message. Good. What else? People would think that he's a demon person. Okay. You want to be associated with the team of the demons, right? Jesus wants to be associated with John the Baptist. He wants to be associated with Isaiah the prophet. He doesn't want to be associated with the demonic world. Right, so Jesus demonstrates his authority to silence these demons rather than even giving them the opportunity to speak. Um, everyone is amazed. I want you to note how um, the people were also amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching? And with authority, he even gives order to impure, orders to impure spirits and they obey him. We don't hear his teachings here, but his teachings are connected with his actions. That's, that's very Markin, all right? Mm-hmm. It's very Markin, because what Jesus does is what he says, okay? And think about it. What the, the lessons that we learn that are most profound in our lives are not so much what we read, but what we have experienced, right? It's what God has done in our lives that makes the truths of God come alive. Well, and what we believe is how we act. Right, exactly. So they're linked together. So what happens next? As soon as they left the synagogue, where do they go? Went to the home of Simon and Andrew. Went to Simon and Andrew's house. And what's going on there? Peter's mother-in-law is lying sick with a fever. You know the old story. (laughs) That um, Peter denied Jesus three times because he healed his Um, (laughs) mother-in-law. So, (laughs) yeah, that's what I said. So um, I didn't I didn't use that one at the well. I didn't. didn't, That was that was too dangerous of a territory. Two hundred women in a room. You don't want to make that joke. A lot of them are mother. That's right. So, 
So anyway, uh, Peter, uh, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. So this is the first healing in the book of Mark, right? And so now we see Jesus' authority over, um, over that. So it's interesting. Jesus leaves the synagogue and he goes to the home of, of Simon. And um, the disciples follow him there. Okay? Is it easy to follow the Lord in your own home? Among your own family? <laughs> it's a loaded question. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Yeah, it is because you know everyone, but it isn't because they know you, right? Sometimes your message is discredited, right, in your own home because they, they're like, who are you to tell us about Jesus? We know you. We were the one bailing you out of the clink when you got in trouble. We're the one who changed your dirty diapers, Right? <laughs> You're human just like the rest of us now. You're all holier than thou, right? So it can be very difficult to walk, to follow Jesus, to walk the life of faith in your own home. But we see this progression as Jesus moves from the peers to the family. The next thing that happens... Can we stop here? Just no, we cannot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. They're going after church to eat dinner. And this is hospitality-oriented country. So this is pretty embarrassing for Peter's mother-in-law to have all these people come in for dinner. And she's sick. Right. I mean, he really bails her out of a, a very touchy situation. Good. I'm glad you brought that up. It, it says then that she gets up, and what does she do? She serves them. She serves them. Waits, upon, waits on them. Now, interestingly, the word wait on them, then some people would say, yeah, that's right. Of course, that's exactly what a woman should do. Wait on the men. That's what should happen. Um, uh, but Jesus was just hungry. That's, that was the long and short of it. He was but, hungry. But, but what happened, interestingly here, the word that's used for her waiting on them is the same word that's used about the angels that wait on Jesus after the temptation. And so it's kind of a really a beautiful picture, isn't it? Um, that the angels of heaven wait on the Son of God. When we are touched by God, what do we do? We serve him. We wait on him. We serve his needs. Not our needs, his needs. Right? We become his servant. Remember, this is the servant-oriented gospel. All right? And so these are interesting details. Yeah. Another detail here would be that Jesus was dressed differently because he was a rabbi. Yes. So he would have a particular dressing even when he started calling his people. So it was a privilege because it's like a mentoring. I choose you, but then they chose him also. There's a, there's a, there's a relationship that goes in, in two directions. So they say, well, maybe they felt privileged because, you know, here's a rabbi who came here and select us and choose us directly and call us by name right. and then follow me. Yeah. And so, because then later Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Yeah. So he, he did that and right. God brought you to me. Yeah. So there was some preparation, something ready for them to do that, but also they identified and they were in a privileged position. And then when they're going to these places, they're going with a rabbi. Make sense? Yes, excellent. And, you know, it's, it's important to, re to note that Jewish rabbis, um, their students chose them, 
not the other way around. It's just like our university system. We choose the university we want to go to. In essence, we choose our rabbis. We choose our teachers. Mm -hmm. They don't choose. We don't. They aren't. Cho they don't choose us. We choose them. And the same is true. And the same is true uh, in among the Greek philosophers. And so Jesus choosing his disciples is very unique. Um, and I think it points to this idea of predestination, this idea of God chooses. We are the chosen. We are the elect. We have been selected by God, called out from among the peoples to be his followers. And so we see this even in the calling of the disciples. So it's really a very important point. Um, so then after sunset, note it says after sunset. All of this takes place in one day. Okay. Um, the sun goes down, and when the sun goes down, the Sabbath ends. And when the Sabbath ends, then people can move freely. And what happens? It says that all of the whole town shows up on Peter's lawn. Okay? So all these people from the entire town show up. Now, who are these people? Sick and demon -possessed. The sick and demon-possessed. They're from the town of Capernaum. How big is the town of Capernaum? It ain't big. You know? It's like, you know, no water. It's little. All right? It's like Beggs or Perkins or, you know. It's small. Mounds. Right? So it's a small town. These were known people. But they were not the people that Peter would have associated with. These are the sick. These are the crazies. These are the people that are impure. That a good Jew wouldn't associate with. That a good Jew wouldn't touch. So Jesus now leads the disciples out onto the lawn to minister to these people. See the progression? So we've moved from our peers, the people that are respectable, the people that we know, the people that we want to be like, the people that we want to be accepted by. God, Jesus says, follow me there. Then he says, follow me among the people that know you better than anybody knows you, your family, which isn't always easy. And then he says, now follow me among the people that you know, but the people that you don't associate with, the people that aren't your people. That, that aren't the people that you hang with, the people that you consider less than you. And Jesus goes out and touches them and heals them. And the disciples are following. That's the implication of the passage. Then Jesus, the next morning, it says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. And Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you! And Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else so that the nearby to the nearby villages so that I may preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So I want you to think about this for a moment. Okay, first of all, Jesus gets up and goes and prays, right? Mm -hmm. Which is an amazing thing, okay? Um, secondly, uh, because first of all, it was a busy day. I would have taken a rain check on the prayer time, right? 
but Jesus gets up and he goes. And so the next thing that happens is that Jesus, um, you can imagine him sitting up there on the hillside and he sees Peter down there going like this, <laughs> looking for Jesus, right? Right? And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden what happens? They see him and they come up and you can, you can just think of Jesus going, oh man, guys, just give me a break, right? Just give me a few more minutes. I came out here to be, get away from you for a minute, okay? But in essence, that's not really what happens, is it? Um, they come to Jesus, and I think Jesus was glad that they came looking for him. Because this is the first time they have followed him outside of the city. Up until this point, everything has happened in Capernaum. Now this is the first time they're outside of Capernaum. And they continue to follow. So Jesus says, now, come with me to the other cities of the region. You see the progression of discipleship? You see how Jesus is stretching the disciples to go where they've never gone, to connect with people with whom they've never connected before. Now, the final story, and I'm kind of moving through this quickly because I want you to get the big picture rather than just get caught in all the details of the little picture. But I want you to see how the stories connect. Um, we come to the, the, the man who is um, a leper. And would someone just read that story for us, verses 40 through the end of the chapter. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Okay. So why is this story placed here? Well, it's the next step, isn't it? The leper is the person that nobody accepts. The leper is the person that's completely rejected by God. He is the person who's completely rejected by society. He's completely on the outside. And Jesus touches this man. And the disciples have to follow Jesus in this. Okay? That's really a stretch. Right? So you can see the extent to which Jesus is stretching them. A few things I want you to note about this. Jesus, the man comes with great faith, doesn't he? He says, I know that if you are willing, you can heal me. And Jesus says, I will be healed. His verse and my verse were a little different because mine says filled with compassion and yours said something that indignant, indignant which is... I mean, to me, those are totally polar opposites. They are very different words. And there is a textual variant there. That means that different manuscripts have different words. And so uh, the NIV elected to choose the indignant word, um, whereas other translations have chosen the compassion word. And you can see both of them. Jesus would have been compassion, had compassion for the man. He was indignant at what the sin had done to this man 
and the way that society had treated him by rejecting him and casting him out. Okay, so we see both this anger element and this compassion element in the story. And he's talking um, about the circumstances. Mm -hmm. There's a circumstances. When we see something that is not right, right, we just got that. This is not just. It's not just. And exactly. so therefore, I will react. And hopefully that's what happened. One of the main problems that we have nowadays is we see things that are not just, and we just don't do anything. Right. But I, I always took this as a response to, if you are willing, if you are willing, the others would come, you know, son of David, uh, you know, mm. you're my blindness or, or whatever. But this person says, if you are willing, that's what I thought he was indignant about, because God is, of course, willing. He, he, he wants everyone to be saved, everyone to be healed, everyone to prosper. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I tend to look at it in terms of his indignance is, is not on the man, because I think the man comes in great faith. Mm -hmm. yes, yes. I, think, I think his faith is evident, and that's why Jesus um, he responds to that faith. Um, he says, if, if you are willing... If you really can love me, if, you know, think about what society had told this man. You are unclean. You are unworthy to be in the presence of God. Your sin has disqualified you. Your, not only your sickness has disqualified you, and your sickness is probably because of your sin. And all of that has disqualified you from a relationship with God. And I think Jesus is indignant at that because it's not true. God loves this man. And he comes with trepidation. He says, if you're willing, you can make me heal. I know you have the power to do it. I know you're the guy. And Jesus says, I am willing. Be healed. I don't know. That's the way I, I feel it. But I understand where you're coming from with that. And um, You can also look at it from the standpoint that what he's indignant, unhappy, mad about, is the demon and not the man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if he were really indignant, he wouldn't have said, you're healed. Right. Right. Yeah. So now I want you to think about what happens here. He, he silences the man and he tells him he cannot tell anyone what's happened to him, that he is to go and to tell the priests and make the proper sacrifices that Moses requires <laughs> for your cleansing. And the man is disobedient, right? <laughs> And as a result of his disobedience, what is, the, what is the result or the consequence of that disobedience? Jesus couldn't, Jesus couldn't come back into the town. Now, what I want you to capture from this is that when we, the story begins, the man is on the outside of society. Jesus is on the inside. When the story is over, the man is on the inside. Jesus. And Jesus is on the outside. So Jesus has taken the place of the man. He has become the substitute for this leprosy, this man with leprosy. Um, and that's just, that's a powerful image in and of itself, isn't it? Okay. Now, the other thing that I want you to catch about this has to do with the sacrifice that he's required to give. Leviticus chapter 14, starting at verse 1, gives us the ritual that is um, the cleansing of the leper and the sacrifice that needed to be offered. And so I wanted to take a minute to demonstrate that for you. So I have a sacrifice here. Uh-oh. So my mom gave me this prayer shawl. So uh, 
we'll go we'll go priestly on you. Um, so this is what it requires. There is to be uh, a, an earthenware bowl. There is to be water. There is to be whoops, a scarlet thread. Use the ribbon so you can see it. A piece of piece of cedar wood and some hyssop. And I, I use a paintbrush for hyssop because hyssop was basically used to sprinkle. That's what yeah, the right. priests used. It was a little wiry, branchy kind of plant from the desert. And they would dip it in the blood and they would use it to sprinkle. So that's what the hyssop is for. Um, they were to take two identical birds. Okay? So the man who was who was uh, ill from leprosy was to bring two identical birds as sacrifices to the priest. The priest would take one of those birds and he would kill it, he would sacrifice it. And its blood was to be put into the bowl with the cedar and the hyssop and the scarlet thread. And as that bird is bleeding out into the bowl, he's to take water and pour the water over the bird. Then he's to take the live bird. He's to dip it into the water so that it's covered in the water and the blood. And then he's to release it and let it fly free and it flies off into the into the into the into the into the trees. What is this the picture of? Sacrifice. Jesus. It's a picture of resurrection. Isn't it? Well, and the crucifixion. And the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. Jesus is going to go on a on a tree, he's going to be hung on a wooden cross. The scarlet thread, what does the scarlet thread represent? Blood. Blood. The blood, the plan of salvation, the, the plan of salvation that has been woven through the scriptures from the beginning to the end. The hyssop is for the sprinkling upon us of that blood. Blood and water are mixed together. What comes out of Jesus' side when he's blood crucified? And Blood and water. Okay? Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 about baptism. Right? You go under the water dead and then you come out, what? Alive. To new life. And so uh, two identical birds. One is dead and then the other one comes out of that blood, out of that water, and flies away free. The Yom Kippur, I mean the sacrifice on the day of the atonement. One lamb is slain and the other is released into the wilderness. The scapegoat. The scapegoat. Yeah. So think about this picture that is painted for the priests in the temple where this man is to travel and he's to say, I've been cleansed of my leprosy. And he brings witnesses with them and they're saying, dude, this guy was a leper and he's no longer a leper. What happened? Well, there was this man. His name is Jesus from Nazareth. And he touched me. And he healed me and he sent me here. And all of this drama was to be played out before the man and before the priest as a testimony of what God was doing. See the bigger picture that Jesus is trying to paint for the religious leadership so that they would understand. See the connections he's making to the Old Testament so that they would understand what he was doing, why he had come. Remember what John said? I baptize you in water. 
But there is coming one after me who is mightier than I, who will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. Spirit. So we're going from the symbolic to the real. We're going from the water to something that's real. We're going from a couple of birds and a clay bowl and some water and blood to the reality of what God is doing, the true essence of the plan of salvation, what all of this has been pointing to. It's powerful. Don't you think that the rabbi knew this leper too, knew of him? Everybody knew. I mean, if he was, you know, in that community. Yeah, yeah. But he would have had to go all the way to the temple to make sacrifice. You can't make sacrifice in Galilee. The only place you can kill a bird legitimately is in the temple. Okay? They, but they knew it. Think about a small community. You knew everybody. Everything. Right. About everybody. For several generations. <laughs> Guilty as charged. <laughs> I know. I know. There's another interesting aspect of this. Jesus tells them to don't tell anybody. You could look at this from the standpoint of, uh, well, this is reverse psychology. 